This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we are going to finish chapter 9 today of Romans and move into chapter 10. And we're talking today about a great uh, tragedy, a great irony, and a great opportunity. Irony, tragedy, and opportunity. Romans 9.27 through 10.4. And so if you could turn to the ninth chapter of Romans and go down to verse 27... Uh, We are going to begin there today, Romans 9 and verse 27, and in honor of the author of God's word, if you could stand together as we read the word of God and prepare to study it this morning. The Apostle Paul says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we just sung together in that beautiful song, I'm deeply aware that if I do not preach Jesus, I I do not preach. And so, Father, we, we do pray that we would see Christ through the preaching of your word right now. That Jesus and his finished work for for us, the cross and the resurrection, uh would be lifted high. And that as Jesus is lifted up that you would draw us to yourself. And so, Father, we we thank you for the work that you're doing in this world. We thank you that we get to be a part of it. Those of us who have come to know you by faith, thank you for the, the mission that we get to be a part of in this world that Paul is talking about here. We pray that you would give us the kind of passion and burden for lost people that we see in this text. And Father, I pray for anyone in my hearing right now who is lost, 
who needs today to repent and trust in Jesus and receive the forgiveness of light of, of, of sins and new life and eternal life that is found in him. God, I pray that you would grant repentance and faith today to them. And so, Lord, these, hour, these minutes are, are crucial, and we pray that your spirit would work in them with power. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as a baseball fan, uh, this past week was is always one of my favorite weeks of the year because July 31st is the trade deadline in Major League Baseball. So I'm always fascinated about what team is going to do what, you know, and what team is going to make that, that big trade. And the reason that they make sort of trades at this time of year is because teams are looking to fill out their roster. They're usually trying to sort of to, to fill in a, a, a piece on their roster that is missing. And we see something like that in this particular text because in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is sort of answering a, a question that people are asking. He's sort of trying to kind of fill in the missing piece of a puzzle. To the answer, to an answer to the question, you know, what about Israel? What about God's promises to the Jewish people? And his promises to them have a, a lot to do with his promises to us as, as well. And what we see in this particular text is we see irony, tragedy, and opportunity. First of all, we see here a great irony. Now, if you weren't uh, with us when we began in chapter 9, I, I talked about the fact that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see a lot of, uh, Paul's writing a lot about, about Israel, about uh, the fate of, of Jewish people. Um, and if you're new and you're kind of wondering, well, you know, why does he do that? He does it for several reasons, okay? Our, our faith as, as Christians all flows from uh, the Old Testament, from Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, okay? Jesus was the, the Jewish Messiah coming as an answer to the, the prophecies of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. The earliest followers of Jesus were Jews. The first church in Jerusalem was made up of Jewish people, and the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to the Romans that we're studying, studying was a Jew. And so the church that Paul is writing to, the church in Rome, was made up of both Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, and, and one of the goals that Paul has, one of the reasons that he writes Romans is because he wants these two groups of people with very, very different backgrounds to be completely unified in the church. Paul's vision is for a church that from from Jews and Gentiles and people from all kinds of, of ethnic backgrounds and all kinds of races coming together as one, as, as a beautiful example of, of, the, of the love in Christ that binds us together. But in particular, the, 
the Jewish believers in the early church, in the church at Rome, were trying to make sense of the fact that, that, that most of their family members and friends were still rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And they were asking questions like, well, what does that mean? Because we see all of these promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. You know, have all of those promises just been set aside? Well, what's, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of all of these? unsaved Jewish people that we see around us. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the first part of chapter 9, we saw there in verse 6 that Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, God is going to fulfill his promises. And that's one of the points here that, that Paul is making here. And he, and he begins to make that point by going to the Old Testament, beginning in verse 27. So let's look at verses 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Paul here quotes two passages from the book of Isaiah, two prophecies from Isaiah, and both of them have something in common. In both of these prophecies in Isaiah that he's quoting, these are prophecies of the fact that due to their sin, Israel was going to suffer judgment, and they were going to be sent into exile. But God would not allow the nation to be destroyed completely. He was going to always preserve a remnant. Now, can you see why Paul would, would go to those passages, considering what's happening among Jewish people in the first century? He's saying that our situation now in the first century is, is like that. Because, yes, we do see a lot of unsaved Jewish people all around us. And as he, as he writes to the church at Rome, he's writing to people who had unsaved Jewish friends and family members all around them. And sometimes they were discouraged when they looked at that. But Paul is saying to them, listen, God has preserved a remnant Right? He's preserved people like you and people like me, Jews who are coming to faith in Christ. We have not become like Sodom and Gomorrah, which were utterly wiped out. God has preserved a remnant of saved Jews who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, and that is a sign of hope about what he is going to do in the future. And we're going to see more of that when we get to chapter 11. But the preservation of a remnant of saved Jews is the sign that God has not abandoned his promises. Now, you think about in your own life. You may be in a situation, you know, where you go to school or where you work, for instance, where you are very much in the minority. You know, you may be the only believer where you work or, you know, or among a lot of the people that you're around at school or whatever. Probably not the only believer in your school, but definitely in the minority. And sometimes that can be discouraging. Because you look around you and, you know, it seems like hearts are, are just 
uh, so hard. But I want to tell you something. God is not done with that place. God is not done with your school. God is not done with the place where you work. God is not done with the, the people that he's placed you around. Do you know why? Because he's placed you among them. The very fact that he has put you there as a remnant, a faithful remnant, is a sign that he is not done. He's not done with those people. He's not done with that place. So keep praying for them. And keep showing, showing works of love to them. And share the gospel with them. Keep sharing Jesus with them. God's preserved that remnant and he's put you there for a reason. And one day the remnant can become a wave. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now we get to this incredibly tragic irony. And the irony is that, you know, Jewish people who had the law, who had the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, they had so many spiritual advantages. And, you know, you would think that they would be the, the, the ones that were coming to Christ, that, you know, Jesus came as their, was one of them, came as their Messiah. You would think that they would, they would be the ones that would be coming to Christ in, in droves. But, but Paul says, you know, that's, that's not happening. But then Gentiles who would be like the least likely people that you could imagine to be saved, were coming to Christ in, in droves. This is the irony that Paul is talking about here. You know, when we, we saw in chapter 1, we remember when we looked at chapter 1 and we were looking at verses 18 through 32 of Romans 1, and Paul there was talking about the Gentile world and just how, how crazy it was. Just like the, the moral debauchery of the Gentiles and, you know, they were worshiping idols and they were just utterly just spiritually clueless. I mean, just as, as lost in sin and unbelief as you could possibly be. But yet, in city after city, in, in cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Rome, these pagan Gentile cities, these spiritually clueless people were coming to know Jesus and their lives were being just, just utterly, radically transformed. How did that happen? It happened because someone told them about Jesus. They told them about, about the Son of God who, who had no sin of his own, but who had gone to the cross to die for sinners like them and sinners like us. And that he took our sins upon himself and that he rose victoriously from the dead. 
and that he reigns today as king and that through repentance and faith by turning to him and trusting in him that a righteousness not our own can be credited to our account and we can be given a right standing before a holy God. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be given new life and eternal life. They heard that message. They were hearing that message through the lips of believers all in cities across the Greco-Roman world. And these Gentiles, whose lives had been so messed up, whose belief systems were just so crazy, they were coming to know Jesus. Their lives were being utterly transformed by the gospel. And, and you know, Paul says it, it wasn't that they, they were saved because they had been pursuing righteousness. I mean, like one glance at their life would, would show that before they came to know Jesus, they had not been pursuing righteousness. But they, they came to know Jesus and, and, and through faith in him, the perfect righteousness of Jesus was credited to their account and the Spirit of God was beginning to transform their lives. And it all happened through faith. He says at the end of verse 30 that it, it, it was by faith. It did not come because they tried to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and establish their righteousness before God through their own works. They were relying on the work of Christ. On their behalf. And, and because of that, they were being saved. They were being united to a perfectly righteous Savior and given a right standing before God because of the work of Jesus. But what about the majority of Jewish people? He says in verses 31 and 32, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is the tragic irony of this, is that Jewish people who had the law of God, which we saw in, in, in chapter 7 and verse 12, which is it's good and righteous and holy. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Jewish people who were given that good and righteous and holy law were misusing it. And instead of God's law becoming something that would make them cry out to God for mercy and trust in him and rely upon him, the law had actually become a point of pride for them. And they were, they, they had, had, we're under the illusion that, you know, somehow we are in and we are accepted because we have been given the law of God. Paul says, here's the problem. You did not succeed in reaching that law. <laughs> None of us do. And God doesn't grade on a curve. We can only be saved through the work of Christ by hurling ourselves on the mercy of what God has done for us in Christ, in the gospel. Jesus Christ is either going to be the rock that you stand upon by faith or the rock that you trip over. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, why? They did not, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone 
As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, Paul is quoting here from Isaiah, a combination of verses from Isaiah, which clearly teach that this rock that is prophesied about is Jesus, is the promised Messiah. But the tragic irony is that, Je- that, that Jewish people are tripping over their own Messiah. New Testament scholar Michael Byrd says this, the root of Israel's failure is their failure to believe in their own Messiah. Israel's tragedy is that they have stumbled over the very source of their salvation and have taken offense at what could save them from shame. And that leads us to the great tragedy that we see here. And Paul begins to talk about this great tragedy in verse 1, and you can just really again sense his broken heart for his people when he says here in verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now this, this language here really reminds us of Paul's broken-hearted language in the first few verses of chapter 9. Go back to the beginning of chapter 9. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says there, I'm speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, if I could go to hell so that my Jewish brethren could go to heaven, I would do it. He is absolutely burdened for their salvation. And and listen, friends, this was not just lip service. Because what did Paul do? And city after city after city where he visited, what was the first place that Paul would go? The synagogue. He would go into the synagogue first and share Christ with the Jewish people there, and he would meet with various reactions. Some would accept, many would reject, and often he experienced a lot of hostility. But in city after city after city, Paul goes to his own people, to the Jewish people, and shares the gospel with them. It's not just lip service. It's not just saying I'm burdened for them. No, he goes to them. He goes to them. We say that we are burdened for the lost people all around us. But what are we doing about it? We say that we are burdened for friends who don't know Jesus, for family members who don't know Jesus, for people that we go to school with who don't know Jesus, for people that, that are around us in our circle of influence who don't know Jesus. We say that we are burdened for their salvation. But friends, have you shared the gospel with them? When is the last time that you sat across them with a cup of coffee or at a meal and shared the gospel with them? Have you you ever shared the gospel with them? Will you share the gospel with them? And we're going to see next week, you know, people can't get saved just sort of in a vacuum by osmosis. It happens when people speak the gospel to them. Will you share with them? Will you share the words of life with them? Will you go to them? 
I love what Pastor Clay Smith says. He says the Great Commission is all about the word go. G-O. Get out. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your self-sufficiency. Get out of your holy huddle. Get out into a lost world. Get out and share the gospel. Paul says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, who does this sound like? (laughs) This sounds like Saul of Tarsus, right? (laughs) This sounds like Paul before he became a believer. He says of himself in Philippians 3, 6, he said, as for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And he was on his way to Damascus to persecute even more Christians and to have more of them arrested when he himself was arrested by the risen Christ. And his life was turned around. You think about the people in our world today who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And because of that, they persecute believers. I think about, I think about radical Muslims, for instance. But can God take the life of someone who's involved in radical Islam and turn them around? What did he do for Paul? Paul was a jihadi himself. He had Christians arrested and killed. Can God not do that for people today? Oh, yes, he can, and he is. This is a picture of a young man named Bashir Muhammad. He is our brother in Christ. But about five years ago, he was trying to kill us, or people like us, followers of of Jesus. Patrick Kingsley, writing in the New York Times, says this, When 22 Christian refugees gathered in the basement of an apartment in Istanbul on a recent Sunday afternoon, it was quickly clear that this was no ordinary prayer meeting. Several of them had Islamic names. There was an Abdel Rahman and even a couple of Muhammads. Strangest of all, they jokingly referred to their host, one of the two Muhammads, as an Irabi, a terrorist. If Bashir Muhammad took the joke well, it was because there was once some truth to it. Today, Mr. Muhammad, 25, has a cross on his wall and invites other recent converts to weekly Bible readings in his living room. Less than four years ago, he fought on the front lines for an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. He is a jihadi who turned to Jesus. And then the article goes on to describe what happened that... uh, Bashir went to the front lines to fight in Syria out of idealism because he thought he was serving God. He had a zeal for God. But when he got there and he saw the brutality that was happening and even saw Muslims killing Muslims, he knew something about this was messed up. He became a refugee, ended up in Istanbul, Turkey, and There, uh, his wife became sick, and a a Christian uh, prayed for his wife. They asked if they could pray for her in the name of Jesus, and she was healed. And then another believing friend uh, told him about Jesus, and then God gave both he and his wife dreams of Jesus coming to them and saying, Come to me. Do you believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Do you believe what we saw in chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Do you believe that the Spirit of God could turn the hearts of the lost people that you know in your life through the gospel? Oh, he's still doing it. He's doing it all around the world. And he can do it in and through your life as you share the gospel. When we share the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed. Let's look at verse 3. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, Paul can relate to this. This was his story. When Paul shares his story in Philippians 3, what does he say here about himself? He says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith by trusting in the work of Jesus. Paul had been given the perfect righteousness of that Jesus, of, 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 of Jesus, and he knew that he had a righteous standing before God, that he had been made right, that he stood in the right before God, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is credited to the account of every sinner who will turn to Jesus and trust him as Savior. The third thing that we see here in, is, a, is a, a great opportunity. And we see that in, in verse 4 of chapter 10. Paul says here, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the word for end here, that's translated as end, means uh, goal, completion, uh, fulfillment. Jesus said, I I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. Because he did what we could never do. He came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. He, He perfectly obeyed the law of God and then went to the cross for our lawlessness and our violations of the law and atoned for our sins. And righteousness is given to us as a gift when we turn to the Savior by faith. And this gift is for who? What does he say at the end of verse 4? Everyone who believes. It's for everyone who believes. Everyone, anyone can receive this gift. It doesn't matter whether you're Baptist-born or Muslim-born, or Roman Catholic-born, or Buddhist-born, or Presbyterian-born. It doesn't matter if you've lived a life that's, you know, reasonably morally upright, or if your life has just descended into moral chaos. Anyone, everyone, is invited to come. This salvation, this gift, 
of perfect righteousness, a perfect right standing before God is available to who? To everyone who believes. But everyone must come through Jesus. John 14 and verse 6 says, I am the way, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> pastor J.D. Greer is a pastor down in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, J.D. tells a story about um, one time he was in an, an airport and he was in his early 20s, he was still single. And he was at the gate of the airport, <clears throat> and there was a young woman who was there on the same flight, and uh, she was from South America. She was just absolutely gorgeous young woman. And so when they got on the plane, you know, lo and behold, who ends up sitting in the seat right beside him but this beautiful young woman from South America. So J.D. says, you know, she, she, they're both single, you know, and so they, they get into a conversation, and they're, they, they're talking about Jesus and they talk about the gospel, you know, for, uh, for hours during this flight. And a uh, young woman, her name was, was Berta, and, and she, you know, she just, she was engaged in the conversation, and she seemed like she was just intrigued by the gospel. And J.D. said, I, I was saying to myself, this is, this is incredible. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead this beautiful young woman to, to Christ, and uh, we're going to end up getting married. And, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life just preaching to people about, you know, leading my wife to Christ on this plane, and it's going to be incredible. So they're talking about the gospel um, and she seems intrigued by it. And so, you know, after a while, he says to her, he says, so Berta, would you, would you like to trust in Christ? And she says, well, she says, nah. She says, I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, you found peace and that, you know, you've, you've come to know Jesus in this way. And I think that's really wonderful um, for, for you, but I just, I just relate to God in my own way. <laughs> and, and J.D. said, but, but Berta, he said, he, and he pointed to this verse in John 14, 6. He says, you know, J Jesus says that he, he is the way, that like he's the, he's the only way. She said, well, you mean to tell me that, that you know, I, I would have to, everybody has to believe in Jesus and come to God through Jesus like in the way that you do? And he said, well, it's not really like about me. It's about what, what Jesus says about himself, you know, that Jesus says that, you know, he's, he's the way, the truth, the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. It's, it's what Jesus says. She said to him, she said, that, that has got to be absolutely, without a doubt, the most, the most bigoted, narrow-minded thing that I have ever heard anybody say. For you to say that, that in order to go to heaven, that, that every person on earth has, has to come to Jesus the exact same way that you have. That, it's, that, I can't believe your arrogance. J.D. said, at that point, I kind of figured that the wedding was off. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> he pressed on, and he said, well, you know, Berta, he said, um, I'm kind of glad that our pilot doesn't have the same view of truth as you. 
said, what do you mean? He said, I'm really glad that the pilot of our plane right now, you know, doesn't take the, the, the view that, you know what, hey, I'm really tired of those narrow-minded, bigoted people in the control tower, and, you know, I think I'm going to be more f a free-thinking pilot, and actually, instead of uh, feeling like I'm forced to land the plane on the narrow strip called a runway, that, you know what, I, I think today I'm just going to land the plane on the interstate. He said, I'm, I'm really glad that our pilot doesn't have the same view of truth as you. But in one way, she was right. I mean, the way is narrow. I mean, Jesus said that, right? We've got to come by the narrow way. But listen, here's the deal. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. Everybody can come. And that everybody includes you and me. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the work of Christ. We pray for people all around us in our lives, in the sphere of influence that you, that you have placed us in, places where we work, places where we go to school, circles of friends that we have, activities that we do, where there are people around us that don't know you. They need to hear about you. You've placed us among them to be on mission for you and to share words of life, to speak openly of Jesus to them, to love them in Jesus' name, to pray for them. Lord, make us faithful. Help us to understand that as we go forth from here today into our daily lives, that, that we are on mission for you. Father, I pray for anyone here today who came into this room having not repented of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that, that you, by the power of your spirit, would save them, save them, turn their hearts, open their hearts to Jesus. May you cause the scales to drop from their eyes, that they would see the beauty of Christ, the salvation that we can have in him, and that they would come to him, come running to him, in repentance and in faith, trusting in him alone. Lord, we cannot be saved by, a, by our own righteousness. It's not good enough. We can never measure up, but only Jesus did. He lived a perfectly righteous life that we could never live. He died for our failure to live that life on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. He is a living savior offering new life. Oh God, I pray for people here today who need to walk through that open door. Would you grant them the grace to do that today? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.